This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, certainly the story of the week and and one that's probably going to be around for a little while now is Apple's decision to not unlock an iPhone linked to the shooters in the San Bernardino attacks a couple of months ago. In an issue of the Minnesota Law Review last September, Wharton's Eric Ortz and Amy Sepinwall looked at the loss of organizational privacy that is developing here in the U.S. And with the Apple case, of course, this week and calls by some on Capitol Hill for greater collaboration between the tech sector and the government, this topic is a very important one to discuss. We have uh, Amy Sepinwall in the studio right now. Eric is going to be joining us here in just a second. Amy's assistant professor in Warden's Department of Legal, uh, Legal Studies and Business Ethics. Great to see you again. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Just your reaction to the case itself of Apple against the government, because we have just unbelievable. And I mean, this is a case of two sides butting heads trying to figure this out. I think that's exactly right. And I think the issues are really complicated. And because of some security concerns, we don't have a full sense of just what's at stake. Um, in the in much of the media, this has been portrayed as a kind of dichotomy between, on the one hand, security interests, which are obviously very important to us, but privacy interests as well. Um, there's something a little misleading about that, though, because, in fact, um, well, Privacy is a countervailing force against our concerns for security. It's also the case that there are security concerns on Apple side as well as the government side. And Apple security concerns have reason to be of moment for all of us. So Apple's concern is that if it develops this technology, which it doesn't currently have, that will allow it to unlock this phone, that's not technology that's going to be specific to that particular phone, such that... Once that technology exists, it could get into the wrong hands, which could lead to cyber attacks or hacking that essentially puts all of us at risk. So, again, there are security concerns on both sides of this debate, and it's important to take those seriously. Our interest in the issue comes from a larger scale interest in corporate constitutional rights. And uh, those rights themselves are a source of some anxiety. So to take us away from the Apple issue for just a moment, when you think about a case like Citizens United, what's at stake there is a corporate constitutional right to political speech. And again, some of us have concerns about whether corporations should be engaging in politics in that way. Or if you think about Hobby Lobby, what's at stake there is a corporate constitutional right to freedom of religion. Here we have a case of a corporation's invoking its asserted rights to privacy. Um, One important distinction, perhaps, is that it's really doing so not on its own behalf, but on behalf of its users. So it's protecting, seeking to protect its users in ways that they really couldn't protect themselves, both because they obviously don't have the power that Apple has, but also because if, for example, the United States government wanted to be spying on me through my iPhone, I wouldn't know about it. So I wouldn't be able to assert my privacy rights here. So it's incumbent upon Apple, given that it is in this privileged position, to seek to protect the privacy of its users. It's interesting. Uh, Tim Cook actually did an interview yesterday with ABC News. Mm -hmm. And he talked about 
a lot of what you just spoke about, and I wanted to play a clip from because it's interesting. Uh, you know, we think about how this is seemingly a black and white issue, and for him, it may be, but not maybe the version that we were thinking about. What is at stake here is can the government compel Apple to write software that we believe would make hundreds of millions of customers vulnerable around the world, including the U.S.? And you'd have to write that system in order to unlock that phone? Yes. The only way we know would be to write a piece of software that we view as sort of the software equivalent of cancer. We think it's bad news to write. We would never write it. We have never written it. And that is what is at stake here. And that was with uh, ABC's Bill Muir. Just your reaction to, to what he said right there. So I don't think you could put it in starker terms than likening the software to cancer. Yeah. Uh, that isn't the way that I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it more like the development of a master key. But, of course, a master key has power of its own. One of the interesting pieces here is that Tim Cook and Apple as a whole seems to be motivated not just by concerns or perhaps not even by concerns about their bottom line, but on uh, the basis of principle. So uh, just a very deep commitment to privacy, yeah. which Tim Cook in other contexts has called a civic duty that motivates them. And in fact, um, at a meeting with shareholders sometime, I think, in the last year, Tim Cook had effectively said to them, look, if what you care about is the bottom line at the expense of our commitment to privacy, then you really should go elsewhere. So he's been very forthright about the fact that this is a commitment that deserves weight on its own, independent of whatever effect it may have on the company's stock value. In the article that, that you got, you and Eric Ortz did for the Minnesota Law Review, you talk about how also the, the, the term privacy is kind of a fluid term right now, and, and it's changing even as we speak. I think that's right, and it's inevitably the case given how quickly technology itself is developing. And I teach undergraduate students at Wharton, and they have a completely different conception of informational privacy than I might have just because so much of their lives are now made available to the world at large yeah. through various social media. What do you think is is the resolution of this particular case with, with Apple and the FBI? I think it's really complicated. I think if Apple took itself to be in a bargaining position, it could seek to negotiate terms such that the technology it developed would be destroyed immediately afterward yeah. and such that it wouldn't feel subject to... Uh, having now established this precedent whereby the government can compel it to create technology for purposes of breaching users' privacy. So again, if Apple could specify, look, we'll do this, but only because we have very good reason to know that the person whose phone is at issue is someone who committed a series of murders. But for other cases, for lower-level crimes, for example, don't come to us. We're just not going to be your handmaidens when it comes to developing that technology. And, and in that interview later, we, we didn't pull that clip, but Tim Cook kind of alludes to that as well. And he's basically talking about the fact that, you know, if the government hadn't taken the tact that they had in making this such a public issue, that you get the sense that they may have worked with them. So it makes you think if, if, if people hear that comment that, well, maybe Apple does have the ability to do this, but now they just don't want to do this. 
that could be. Um, I think one of the issues here is why did the government come out? I think that the government thought it had this very sympathetic case. Right? Yeah. Everyone wants to see what might have been on the San Bernardino uh, shooter's phone. And as it happens, Apple has been subject to something like 11,000 requests in the last year. Yeah. And has it says it's complied with about 7,000 of them. So it's largely been cooperative. But of course, this is a polarizing, especially polarizing case, given what's at stake. This isn't a low-level criminal. Um, at the same time, the Manhattan DA has said, well, you know, we need to have access to the phones of low-level criminals, too, because some of what we're going to find there is going to lead us to bigger criminals. criminals. Yeah. So you have a slippery slope, and it's really hard to know whether you should embark upon it, and if so, whether you're going to be able to stop that train to mix metaphors once it gets going. Eric Ortz uh, joins us. Uh, this is an interesting week. I, I, I know for you as well, just is watching this all play out because it's it does go, as we were saying with Amy, to, uh, ironically enough, something that you guys wrote about a few months ago kind yeah, of kind yeah. of plays right into it. It's always uh, it's always helpful when you think you're writing something that's rather theoretical and then suddenly it's on the front pages of all the papers and we get invited onto your show, et cetera. So but it, it is a very important issue. And the whole question of um, organizational, you know, the right of organizations to assert privacy rights, whether on their on their own behalf or, or for their customers and users is really a huge issue. And um, it's not a. It's not an easy case. It's not an easy situation, but it's an incredibly important situation. It is, is a company like Apple asserting this on behalf of their consumers a relatively new concept and maybe one that, that we'll, we will see develop as we go farther here? Well, I think that's one of the things that we talked about in our article, but there, there is a kind of theoretical question of does Apple just – is Apple only uh, – uh, responsible for advancing the interest of its users. And in so many of Tim Cook's pronouncements, that's the argument. Mm -hmm. Encryption is created for users. We respect the privacy of our users, and we're not going to make a big backdoor to that. And the reason is that we're protecting the privacy of our users. But I think you also, there are also some times where you, where you see Tim Cook saying, you know, I think you mentioned the ABC interview earlier. Yeah. At one point in that interview, he says, uh, they ask him, well, what would Steve Jobs have done? And he says, I think about that every day. In fact, I think about him every day. And one thing that he said about him is that he never, he always did the right thing, or at least according to how he thinks about it. And yeah. so uh, then the question there is, does Tim Cook, as CEO of Apple, have a responsibility from a business ethics point of view yep. to actually take a position on what the right thing to do is. And I think that is a lot of this argument, too, is that uh, what is the best thing for the future of making everybody safe, protecting privacy on millions and billions of phones? Uh, and I think you do have to take a public perspective on that. It's not just about, at that point, it's not just about business interest. It's not yeah. just about your customers or what's going to make money for you. It's about a higher principle. And I think um, you have Google, Facebook, Twitter, some of the other companies are weighing in. And they have to think about similar kinds of questions. How To what extent can the new technologies be used by terrorists to yeah. hurt many people, not just San Bernardino, but what if someone has a cell phone the FBI needs to unlock and it's a nuclear 
threat of some kind, right? Then, yeah. then what? So and against that issue, you have to balance. Do you really make people safer if you allow have backdoor encryption that maybe criminals or maybe even terrorists could then use, and then they use, use that against you? Yeah. So it's not an easy question, but I think that inevitably the companies are correct that they have to stand up and step up and take a position one way or another on these issues. And at that point, it's really about what is the right thing to do? What are the principles involved? It's yeah. not just about your customers or your future profits. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON. We're talking about the Apple iPhone case against with the FBI, 844-942-7866. We'd like to hear from you. The phone lines are open. Give us a call right now. Again, 844-942-7866. I, I, one of the things, right before you came in, we kind of broached in is this concept of, for lack of a better term, a one-off for the government. Say, listen, you know, we have 14 people that were killed. There is potentially this information on this one phone. If you did this, would you do this and then destroy the, you know, the process of doing it? You know, I think a lot of people w would want that. But the problem is, is that somehow, some way, most likely that information is going to get out. I, I mean, I, I I don't know where you fall on that. Well, I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not a technology expert, so I'm relying to some extent on what Cook and other Apple executives are saying. But my understanding is that what they would have to do technically is that they basically create a new operating system yep. that yep. replaces the phone. Then you run, uh, then you with the new operating system, you can crack the password by running high-level, high computers uh, on that. Now, the idea that you would create that whole operating system, have a bunch of people working on that, who and apparently only Apple executives or Apple, they'd have to use Apple confidential information maybe to create that. But the idea that you g use the, all the effort to create the back door and then somehow can erase that knowledge, yeah. I think is the problem. He, at least from Apple's perspective, you create that new software and then it's it's like creating a new Frankenstein monster out there. Yeah. Some it's like I think he even used the analogy of creating a disease, cancer, cancer yeah. to affect something. But then once you create that, there are going to be other demands for that. And then what's the stopping point? What happens when the Chinese government comes to Apple and says, "We need to you we need you to create a backdoor to stop this terrorist effect"? Yeah. But but you can see that there is something I think to the slippery slope argument that Apple is uh, is, is making there. Amy. Um, right. So let me uh, add something that gets back to your earlier question about whether this is a new frontier, whether we're just now seeing um, technology corporations trying to protect their users. The precedent that the government invoke is invoking here is a 1977 case involving phone companies where the phone companies were resisting government efforts to track the phone numbers that mm -hmm. suspect individuals were calling, and the phone companies were forced to relent and to hand over that information. But of course, that's a much smaller scale infringement on privacy relative to all of the content that's currently on yeah. a person's iPhone, their photos, their notes, their calendar, their location. Credit card info. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, some very sensitive financial information, some potentially intimate information. And so what's at stake here is much larger, uh, to say nothing of um, Eric's concerns uh, that he rightly raises about this technology's getting into the wrong hands. And again, even if they could manage to erase the new operating system itself, yeah. the developers now have 
the knowledge of how to do this in their heads. And you don't want to have a situation where someone becomes disgruntled or someone gets bought for a high enough price such that they're willing to recreate this technology that we thought was destroyed and it ends up in the wrong hands. 844-WHARTON is the number, 844-942-7866. The other interesting thing, Eric, is the fact that we're talking about an issue of privacy uh, in an era where technology advances so quick, so fast, day in, day out. That is advancing so fast, but yet privacy, in some respects, is going back to the basics of our country back in the 1700s. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting kind of kind of mix of topics here. Well, I think you're right about that. And uh, there, of course, is a lot of law that's developing to protect privacy rights, whether it's in the context of the Fourth Amendment protection against uh, unreasonable searches and seizures or um, or other areas of privacy. And, and Amy and I have written about the different areas of privacy and following other people. But I think you're right. And one of the things, that, the questions about law is that in it's somewhat – somewhat ironic that in the United States, where I think we have a general sense that our privacy is very heavily protected. In fact, we're a little bit behind some other parts of the world, notably Europe, where they take privacy privacy interests very strongly, and there are fairly large uh, controversies between businesses in the United States that actually want to mine a lot of data, et cetera, versus uh, Europe's uh, sense that you should protect privacy more. So Apple gets thrown right into that as as well as the other big companies. And you even have in the example of this case, just an illustration of how old the law is here. You have the All Writs Act uh, that's being relied on. It was a 1789 act. Okay, you know, I don't think anybody was thinking about, let's get all of your information (laughs) on an iPhone when that was written. So (laughs) it's probably time to update the law a little bit on privacy. And, and then you have a democratic um, determination of what the law of privacy should be in this age rather than these court fights. But that doesn't mean we're not going to have this court fight. It looks like it's inevitable. Amy? Um, right. I'm not sure I have very much to add okay. except my uh, vigorous agreement. Well, I guess the other part about it is, you, you know, you talk about uh, about if we need to update the, the, the philosophy and the laws on privacy – uh, potentially then if we're talking about one company thinking about what their level of privacy is because they're looking out for their consumers, other companies could potentially view privacy in, in, a, in a different manner, correct? Well, that's correct. And so you have, um, you're going to have a division of uh, different companies involved. I mean, one, one of the other interesting features here is that, uh, and this is something that Amy and I write about in our article, is that if you think about it, it you know, the, the, the traditional idea was that you would have big government and then individual people would, yes. would, would uh, oppose the government trying to get into their business, uh, invade their privacy. But in a modern world, you really – the idea that one person is going to stand up against the NSA, for example, sure, or yeah. one person in China is going <clears> to <throat> stand up against their government, you, you see that I think – and we make this argument – that organizations like Apple, like the big companies of the world who uh, who are in, engaged in providing this technology, which ostensibly is providing privacy by encryption and other means, yeah. they actually have a responsibility to step up. And in some ways, if you're an advocate, advocate, advocate of privacy, as I think we are, you want companies to do that because they're the players. It's only Apple that really has the firepower to stand up against the FBI on this issue. It's not going to be every individual iPhone user. Right, exactly. Um, 
On the other side of the issue, one of the interesting dynamics here is that some of these tech companies, even while they're asserting rights to privacy on behalf of their users, engage in a fair amount of data mining on their own, right? So their analytics and their um, business model depends on their tracking what kind of searches individuals are doing. Um, And Apple has presented itself as operating with a different model. So it sees itself as providing hardware, not software, and it sees itself as not as the company itself is disabled from seeing what is on individuals' phones, and that is supposed to be a key virtue of an Apple device. So Apple itself is not participating in this double-sided game where on the one hand it's trying to stave off the government and on the other hand engaging in perhaps its own privacy um, violations. But some of the other tech companies, I think, could be said to be playing both sides of this fence. But I guess it is interesting that that in some respects it sounds like Apple is kind of playing two sides here because they they are obviously, they are a company out to make a profit and they are providing services for you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people around the globe, yet they they do also have the technology aspect of this as well. They do. And I think the cynical take is Apple's just putting up a good front, right? So it's going to yeah. resist for as long as it can, and then the government will compel it, and it will have to turn over the information or it will have to develop the technology. But, of course, we won't be able to blame it because it put up a very good fight. Right, right. I'm not necessarily prepared to be that cynical about it. I think that this is a longstanding commitment of Apple's, that it's not always uh, what is going to enhance its profits. And the commitment is real as far as I can tell anyway. Eric? Yeah, I think that's right. We had had an interesting debate in my MBA class yesterday actually about this case uh, where some students uh, presented a very good – presented this issue. And the opinion in the class, I think, was roughly divided half and half and, because I think it's it's not easy to tell what the motivations are of a company at this sort. I, th- I think when I see – when I've seen Tim Cook actually in these interviews, I – for what it's worth, I'm not an expert in judging uh, demeanor particularly, but – it looks to me like he's seriously grappling with the ethical principles involved here, that it's not just window dressing and, and it's the company trying to make as much profits as possible. So um, Amy's right to also mention that there are other uh, companies that are maybe not as, you know, have different different interests, different profiles right. and, and questions of privacy. And just as companies can defend privacy, as Apple seems to be doing, is I think is doing right now, you can have companies going the other way and, and not uh, not being so protective. Well, you mentioned about, obviously, some of the other big entities in this realm making comments and now starting to make comments about this. But there are probably a lot of other smaller companies, not even necessarily just in the tech sector, that are sitting back and saying, you know, this is this becomes very important for us for how we run our business and how we would like our business to be perceived going forward. Well, I think that's right. I mean, privacy is going to be a big issue, and and so how uh, are there are there companies that are going to be able to provide a better product, a better protection? Are there are there new ways in which you can think about this? I mean, you could take a radical perspective too, and so I think some in the younger generation might take this view and just say, well. You guys are old-fashioned worrying about privacy. There's no, going to be no such thing as privacy. We're all headed toward a, a world of 1984, and there's nothing going to stop it. Yeah. Um, and certainly, there are a lot of technologies that are increasing the amount of um, 
general, generally, the, incre- um, the amount of information you can just have out there if you sure. decide to, you can just put your life online essentially. And, and you'll have that side, but then you have the other side, as you're indicating, of companies that might be saying, well, how could we protect people's privacy even better? And can we, uh, can we think of new business ideas and innovations that would allow that to happen? Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Kathy is in Panama City, Florida. Kathy, welcome. Hi. This is a great conversation. Uh, somebody just made a remark a few minutes ago that uh, we kind of, as Americans, felt largely secure in our privacy. And that one didn't hit true with me. Uh, it seems like every day uh, I'm getting hit with something where my privacy somewhere has been hacked, you know, on computers or something. Uh, so I don't have a feeling of, of privacy or security anymore. So I just wondered if maybe they could comment, you know, on that. I, I think that, that what Apple is fighting is something that everybody needs to be more aware of, and not just on phones. I think it applies kind of broadly to all technology. Who would like to take that? Well, I guess I can start. I think that um, uh, I agree with the caller that um, privacy concerns are on on many people's minds in the United States, and I and I agree also with the caller that we are not better protected in the United States as citizens in, for example, the European Union. The privacy protections there against uh, businesses and the government, I would say, are greater there. And so even though many people in the U.S. may think that their privacy is protected, and I think the caller is right. It's under assault. And in that respect, um, uh, I think it, uh, Apple has been happy with the general public response. There are many, mm-hmm. many people are calling in supporting, supporting them on this issue. And of course, there's the other side. I think they're I think Donald Trump the other day called for a boycott of Apple, and yeah. he probably didn't say that if he didn't think that there would be some <laughs> agreement on his side. So uh, there's a divide in the opinion, but I think the caller's absolutely right to say that this is a big issue on many people's minds in this country. Amy? I agree. I think that uh, each of us has to be concerned about privacy infringements, and there are, um, in the grand scheme of things, what might be seen to be relatively minor instances of privacy violations. But it's really quite inconveniencing and sometimes also quite expensive when your credit card number, for example, uh, gets stolen. So this is uh, maybe more garden variety kind of case, but it is nonetheless one that's worrying and it lends force to the thought that we could develop this technology that the government is asking for, but should it get into the wrong hands, that might be quite devastating for many of us. Um, on the conception of privacy and whether privacy is now this quaint, nostalgic um, notion that uh, no longer has the kind of power that it used to have in virtue of the fact that so much of our lives is made available to others very often at our own behest, right? So mm-hmm. this quote-unquote younger generation, and I'm sad to think that I might not be part of it, <laughs> but uh, this generation that's inclined to broadcast so much of the details of their everyday lives to the world at large, does that undermine the conception of privacy? I don't think it does. I think it might expand the bounds of what is private or what is not private, and more specifically expand the bounds of perhaps what is not private. But I think even for those individuals, it becomes really important to maintain control over the information. So yeah. they're willing to share it, but in their own voice and for their own ends. And that's very different from 
thinking that, well, once they put it out there, it's available for anyone to use in whatever ways. So I think they retain commitments to privacy. It's just that those are articulated and felt in terms of control over information as opposed to um, keeping information under wraps. Kathy, thanks very much for the call. Greatly appreciate it. I guess in kind of wrapping this up, it, because because privacy, people seemingly have uh, one understanding of the term privacy, and maybe they have their own view, view or in, in conception of what their privacy is, that this is a, a topic that could really be thought at and talked about for years to come, and we probably wouldn't have a consensus really get to that point. Am I, am, am I probably right on that? I think you're right on that. I think what, you know, the larger picture that this is really just a part of is that you have increasing concerns about public safety. You're in, sure. We live in a yeah. world where there's terrorist threats yep. and there are criminal gangs that are willing to take a lot, you know, take steps to, to hurt you. And so the government is in, a, in a, is in a situation that they are trying to stay up with the technology to protect the public. That's their job. And on the other hand, we have traditions and, and basic principles of rights and the idea that you have privacy rights and, and other rights that are against uh, the government trying to protect you, protect yeah. everyone. So, yeah. you know, there's going to be that balance, I think, and this is one big instance of the, of the general problem. And I think you're right. We're going we're gonna to have occasions for future conversations of the same kind in other contexts. Amy? I think that's exactly right, that this would be an easier issue if there weren't this huge countervailing concern about security, right? So it's not just how much privacy should we have, but how much privacy should we have at the potential expense of national security, which makes the question all the more complicated. And I think that you're going to see a shifting pendulum that will be responsive to our own sense of security. So in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, you had massive incursions yep. into individuals' privacy, which were tolerated by many because we felt under assault. Yep. And then as we moved away from that immediate aftermath, privacy concerns had a stronger grip than they had had in the years prior. And again, I think a lot of this is just gonna depend on what's happening in the world. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.